Welcome to Profiles from WFIU. I'm Aaron Kane. On Profiles, we talk to notable artists, scholars, and public figures to get to know the stories behind their work. On this episode of Profiles, we feature two encore interviews with Richard Luger, former United States Senator from Indiana. He died this week at the age of 87. Luger dominated Indiana politics during his 36 years in the U.S. Senate, where he became a sage of foreign policy and also distinguished himself through his commitment to bipartisanship. First, we'll hear a conversation with Richard Luger and former Indiana Congressman Lee Hamilton, recorded in front of a live audience at the University of Southern Indiana in 2016. The topic of the conversation was civility in American politics. It was moderated by the former president of the University of Southern Indiana, Linda Bennett. Let's just jump in, and I I really want to start with a little bit of a historic perspective. I want us to look back a little bit so that we can put our current time in perspective. And I I have to ask this question, uh, because quite often civility and American politics are not often grouped together. (laughs) So I... Oh, they laughed. That's good. Um, I do have to ask, though, do you think of a golden age of civility in American politics? I mean, was there a time when it really was possible to have civil exchange across differences? Go ahead. (laughs) (laughs) Well, let me start by saying that I believe that when America is attacked, when we're in crisis, uh, we come together. For example, after 9-11 or the Pearl Harbor attack, and these occurred during my lifetime. But uh, I recall... On those occasions, although there have been great foreign policy differences between the parties or the president and the Congress at that time, it became apparent very rapidly that we needed to talk to each other. As a matter of fact, we needed to come together to defend ourselves, to defend our country. Now, this shouldn't always have to be a crisis that brings about civility, but you ask historically. These are two lifetime points that I remember. As as a student... Of politics, and you, uh, Mrs. President, would know better than this, but uh, during our Constitutional Convention and the coming together of those that really brought the foundations for our country, that dialogue proceeded over several years of time. This was not simply a, a simple meeting or that of a few weeks of time. And very substantial differences among great people who we revere But at the same time, they persisted because they realized they were forming a nation and they were hopeful it would be a great nation and this was going to require their participation. Uh, I I hate to see the lapse all the way from the Constitution uh, to Pearl Harbor. Uh, I'm certain there there may have been some other happy times in the meanwhile. (laughs) But I rely upon my colleague, Lee. I'm not enough of a historian to know if there have been eras of uh, civility. What I do know is there have been examples of marvelous civility over a period of many years. When George Washington was 16 years of age, he said that we must treat everyone with respect. And I've often found myself... uh, thinking that the politicians today could learn a lot from 16-year-old George Washington. 
Civility is uh, absolutely essential to both the quantity and the quality of work that you're able to do. If you have an environment of distrust, of mean-spiritedness, of anger, uh, you're not going to get much done. Civility is a lubricant. It is a lubricant in all human transactions, not just political. With your friends, with your organizations that you belong to, you know how important civility is. And it is hugely important in politics. Let me cite the example of the 9-11 Commission on which I serve. We were fortunate to have this chairman, Thomas Kane, who was a former governor of uh, New Jersey. And he insisted when we had five Democrats and five Republicans come together to work on some of the most contentious homeland security issues you can imagine. He insisted that for two or three meetings, we never do any business, but we get to know one another. So that I looked across the aisle and saw Ed Meese, the arch enemy for a Democrat like myself, <laughs> and I got to know Ed Meese not as a Republican or as a conservative, but as a family man and as a friend. And I put away the label Republican or conservative, and I'm sure he had to do the same thing with dealing with Lee Hamilton. So civility was crucial to the ability of the 9-11 Commission to work. And I can't think of a single time when you could make progress in, a, in an atmosphere of distrust. The reason that Dick and I were able to work together so much is because we were very civil to one another, didn't always agree with one another, but we always had our eye on the target, and that was to try to solve the problem in front of us. Do you see much evidence of that today? And I'm not trying to be facetious. I really am not. But I mean, in terms of how our government, our national institutions are operating today. Well, I think there isn't any doubt that uh, you're in a rough patch now. <laughs> And uh, the big question is how you get out of it. Yeah. Uh, not an easy question to answer. Of course, you see, you see civility every day. There are a lot of politicians who are very civil. But it is true that overall the Congress, which has a public uh, esteem rating of less than 10%, the lowest mm -hmm. in its history, has become excessively partisan, excessively uncivil, and therefore, as you should expect, very, very unproductive. I can give you some modern examples, and Dick and I shared this experience. Uh, Ronald Reagan and Tip O'Neill. Ronald Reagan, the great conservative, Tip O'Neill, the great liberal, who was Speaker of the House at the time. We had a lot of meetings together. I don't want to suggest those discussions were easy. I don't want to say there were never tensions that arose. There certainly were. There was very robust, vigorous debate. But I can't remember either the president or the speaker becoming uncivil. And both of them tried to top each other with an Irish story. <laughs> and one of the things they always did was try to end the meeting on a note of levity. 
so that people left the meeting with a good feeling. I learned a lot from those two master politicians, and uh, civility was a big part of it. Let me so, mention uh, Ronald Reagan again. At the time that uh, it first became apparent that there might be an arms control treaty between the former Soviet Union and the United States, and this was during this period, 40-year period, which we forget, a so-called mutually assured destruction. In that period of time, the United States uh, had weapons aimed at Russia and its military and its uh, cities and the, and the Russians likewise. I, I recall as mayor of Indianapolis, I was not aware we were under the gun, but any one of those nuclear warheads that I saw in Kazakhstan where we were taking down those warheads would have obliterated my whole city. This was for 40 years. Uh, Reagan knew that in order to get a treaty, you need a two-thirds majority in the Senate. He, he asked eight Republicans, eight Democrats, as I recall, to go to Geneva, Switzerland, including the leadership, Bob Dole and Bob Byrd. Sam Nunn was one of the Democrats that was selected, and I was one of the Republicans. We got to know each other well. As it turned out, uh, all of that fell through in 1986. Sam and I continued to meet with some of the Russians that we had met around that time. I skipped five years later, the Soviet Union is collapsing. Some of the Russians we've been meeting with came to Washington. We sat around a round table in Sam's office that I rolled down to my office when Sam left the Senate, and now we're at Luger Center now. Uh, and uh, the, Re the Russians said, you folks in the United States are in a lot of trouble. I said, in what way? He said, well, some of the uh, warheads, nuclear warheads that are aimed at you, your cities, your military, um, may be deserted because uh, troops are deserting. They're trying to support themselves. They're trying to take material off the base. It could be an accident that there hasn't been in 40 years. And uh, you've got some problems. I said, what do you want from us? They said, well, a lot of your money to begin with. <laughs> and then we're going to need some technicians to take down the missiles, take off the warheads, begin to destroy all of the above. By the time we're finished, we don't know what's going to happen in this breakup of the Soviet Union that was going on at that time. We may need some of your troops and all. Now, this was the beginning of the Nunn-Luger Cooperative Threat Reduction Act, which was assisted greatly by Ash Carter, who was then a junior fellow at Belfer and Harvard, came down, issued a white paper to a breakfast, once again, a bipartisan groups of senators that we brought together. And in the course of a couple of weeks at the end of that session in 91, we passed the Nunn-Luger Act, and the House went along, and uh, that began a 20-year period of time in which the United States and Russia literally took down one weapon after another. We both had well over 10,000 nuclear warheads aimed at each other at the beginning. After the various arms control treaties down to about 1,500 each, and maybe lower than that as it stands, and that's still an awful lot. But I, I mention this because uh, for 20 years, Either Sam or I had to get an appropriation money from the Congress to continue the work of the Nunn-Luger Act that year. And other members would put all sorts of stipulations on there, and we had to work patiently through that to make certain the work kept going. I went over to, to Russia, Kazakhstan, Belarus, uh, Ukraine, uh, at least twice a year to uh, help encourage and uh, supervise or find out new ways we could be helpful, as we thought also about chemical weapons and biological weapons began to bob up into the picture. This was, was bipartisanship, I think, at its best. And over a, a decade, 
in which there were four different presidents coming and going, different cabinet members. But the security of our country was at stake. If, if somehow that had gotten fouled up and there had been a mistake, and there had been a, a city in this United States of America annihilated, or, or a base or so forth, history would be very different. So I, I mentioned, as we're taking a look at the grim situation now, the fact is right now we could not possibly pass an arms control treaty. The last one we passed was the final year that I was in the Senate in 2012. And this happened after the election was over and everybody wanted to go home. Somehow got the so-called New Star Treaty across the line. But since that time, the Congress has become much more volatile and partisan. It's really sort of a record breaker, as our little group center bipartisan index indicates. And uh, it won't go away rapidly. But I think there have been times in which things did work, thank goodness, for the sake of the country. And there are a lot of people still alive because that was the case. There are those, whenever you talk about the topic of civility, and they think you're talking about being polite, about being nice, about being kinder and gentler. And sometimes, <laughs> sometimes the thought is that it's a way of avoiding the difficult decisions. It's a way of avoiding difficult times. So I just have to ask, because I already know that you have strong opinions about this, but is the practice of civility easy? The practice of civility with your friends is easy. The test of civility is to be nice to a person you don't like, who hates your guts, <laughs> with whom you disagree on all the big issues. That's the test. But I think it's important to recognize that our system demands robust debate. And I think a lot of Americans get a little uneasy when they turn on C-SPAN and see people going at one another in political debate. One of the things you become conscious of in the Congress is that you're dealing with controversy everywhere you go. You go to a subcommittee, you're arguing. You go to the committee meeting, you're arguing. You go onto the floor of the House, you're arguing. You go to the hotel for a panel discussion, you're arguing with somebody. Those, that's okay. Robust debate is fine. You ought not to fall off your chair if somebody disagrees with you. So you need robust debate. And it's not always in uncivil to engage in that kind of debate. Now, I understand there's a line here. It can get out of hand, and it's not easy to draw that line. Sometimes it becomes very uncivil and very disappointing to all of us. But uh, keep in mind that robust debate is very much a part of the American system. Our problem with the American system now, this seems to be more apparent than maybe it was in other days, is that there are a number of members of Congress who are in so-called safe seats. By a safe seat, this means the Democrat is going to come out of that district or a Republican. Um, it got that way usually because legislatures in those states redistricted after the decennial census. And uh, very frequently, uh, members of the legislature created these districts and, and thus changed the complexion of the ones around and so forth. I make this point because uh, if you're a member and you're in a safe district, you would say, well, that's great. I'm, I'm here for a, a while and um, I can take my time and but the problem is that the safe district then is uh, in a primary 
each two years in the House. And there are all sorts of groups in America that have their own scorecards. They're very different than the constituents, maybe in the district. They may be a club for growth or Freedom Works or the rifle people or lots of folks. And um, they would say that we want a candidate who is our candidate, who is going to, to follow our line, our rules. As a matter of fact, we're prepared even in a small district to throw in maybe a couple of million dollars uh, just to make sure everybody knows who's who. So it's not the leadership of the party in the district anymore. It's people in Washington or San Francisco or what have you. Um, and furthermore, the member who is the safe seat becomes very fearful of being unseated because uh, that member deviates from the scorecard. Now, this is not a very happy situation in America. In part, it comes from the Supreme Court decision that uh, unlimited political giving could occur, and much of it anonymously, uh, and people have taken advantage of that. So, what happens if the, if the member wants to stay there for a while, he or she becomes very dogmatic, very ideological, and it's my way or the highway. This is not a person that's going to engage in civil discussion. It's, it's a person, as a matter of fact, uh, who is going to be a standard bearer for somebody out there. And uh, that has changed the nature of the debate very substantially. You go into a room and there are a number of people who might be fairly friendly. They're congenial in a social way, but their lives are at stake, they believe, politically. If they cross the line with regard to concessions, and uh, that changes the picture. You're sitting on the campus of a public university. What do you think higher education needs to do to reinforce the practice of civility in our educational mission? As uh, Lee and I have toured Hoosier communities over the years, and we found situations in which there was not very good governance, whether it was at the local level or mayors of cities or various other things. And you ask, where are the talented people in this city or this county? Well, they were practicing law. They were running businesses. Uh, they were making money internationally. And not only delegating to the, sort of the, the also-rans the necessity of public policy, but uh, uh, deliberately staying out of it so they would not be vulnerable to negative attacks or their families would not be vulnerable in this respect. Uh, it's a tough business sometimes. Uh, so my, my thought is, from the very beginning, I'm hopeful a large number of students will be thinking about the possibilities at some point in their lives of public service. Now, it may not be elective office. It could be any, a number of ways in which they serve human beings. But there's nothing more satisfying, nothing more important in terms of a life well lived, in my judgment. And this, I think, we need to get through because when that happens, then people begin to visit with other people who have these aspirations. And uh, you get their ideas or the, their differences or you have a gentle argument or what have you, but you begin to learn how to be effective. How do you conduct a conversation? As we talked about earlier on, and I like Lee's definition of uh, civility is respect. Uh, it's the lubricant that brings about change and choice. And that needs to be thought about and learned from the beginning through practice. My name is Marianne Fox, and my question is, 
what is the role of the political parties in monitoring and establishing the standards for civil discourse? Well, I would just answer quickly that uh, this is a source of consternation, to say the least, for the National Republican Party, because the feeling of Rance Priebus and the others is that they've lost control altogether. That uh, is an awesome situation, but that's the fact of the matter, at least uh, within the Republican Party. I think the uh, political parties have been seriously weakened, in large part because of social media, and they're not nearly as effective as a group as they used to be, but I still think they have a following and they have a role to play, and part of that role has to be to enforce standards of conduct. I think those of us who are partisans have an obligation to express ourselves when we see conduct that we don't like, and I think political parties have that responsibility. What is your opinion of term limits? I served 34 years in the United States Congress. <laughs> I am not and never have been a strong advocate of term limits. Now, first of all, I understand why the idea of term limits is attractive. You got a lot of people in political office you don't like, you don't know how to get rid of them, and you want to throw them out. And the term limit does that. So that's on the plus side. But think of it this way. As soon as you elect a guy or a woman to a position, and they can only serve six years or eight or whatever, what do they do? They begin figuring, well, what did I, what's my next job? And half of their time in office is figuring out how to get in another office with another term limit. It doesn't work very well. Well, I'm in agreement with Lee that it would not be a good idea, at least for members of Congress, to have the term limit situation for all the reasons he suggested. I just found from my own experience that I've cited the Nunn-Luger Act, but I could also cite several pieces of farm legislation that originated when I was chairman of the Agriculture Committee. Uh, my dad was really uh, so unhappy with Franklin Roosevelt when I was a boy that um, when the Roosevelt dimes were minted, we would go to a cafeteria on every Thursday night to relieve my mother of making supper, and inevitably my dad would get a Roosevelt dime and change. And I said, oh, here we go again. He would, <laughs> he would slam the dime down and give a lecture to the poor clerk and what have you. But, uh, so I, but I found it as a boy working on the farm that the problem was that uh, the New Deal legislation limited the acreage of corn and soybeans and wheat that my dad could grow. Now, the rationale at the time was that if you restricted the supply in America, the price would go up for farmers. Um, this seems like a totally inhumane solution presently as we try to think of how we're going to feed the world. But nevertheless, it was a crisis in, in agriculture, and that was one solution.
but it continued on and on uh, because um, there was really nobody who could break up the side. Now, that was one of the wonderful things that Pat Roberts, who's still serving in the Senate from Kansas, he was the House member then. We teamed up, he was chairman of the House Committee, I was chairman of the Senate Committee, and we ended that, and, and we came, therefore, to a new policy of the right to put your acreage in whatever you wanted. But then we really had to stay with it for a while. This was a very large change in American agriculture. And it led to a, a lot of dealings with the Agriculture Department, with the Farm Bureau, uh, with the National Farmers Union, with all sorts of people all over America who were involved in agriculture, who were witnessing a huge change in terms of supply of markets, of potential exports or lack of them, all the rest of it. Um, I, I, as I say, mentioned the Nun Luger thing to begin with because that required 20 years of supervision, literally every year with the appropriation process, with the new people in the administration who were not acquainted with the program. Um, frequently, I guided them through situations in Russia uh, so they could meet the Russians and find at least what needed to happen in those administrations. So it's all well and good to sort of say this is a good way of getting rid of the malefactors, just determine their limits. But uh, I would just say as a practical matter, it would not be a good idea, and the voters still should have the choice, if they wish, to, to continue uh, their memberships. It's been a wonderful evening listening to the two of you. What a privilege it's been. Linda Bennett, speaking with former Indiana Congressman Lee Hamilton and former Indiana Senator Richard Luger in 2016. On this episode of Profiles, we're remembering Richard Luger, who died earlier this week at the age of 87. Next, Luger speaks with Radio TV Executive Director Perry Metz in an interview recorded in 2009. Senator, you yourself were a Peace Prize nominee in 2000 for your work with Senator Sam Nunn on dismantling weapons of mass destruction. That requires a lot of behind-the-scenes work in unglamorous locations. What drew you to it in the first place? I was drawn to work with uh, my colleague Sam Nunn because the two of us were appointed by President Reagan back in 1986 to be a part of a bipartisan congressional team to go to Geneva, Switzerland for the first uh, serious arms control talks with the Soviet Union. It was a breakthrough at that point. Uh, everyone in the world was optimistic that a treaty was going to be formulated that very summer. And the president thought if we had a bipartisan group there of senators, then the odds of getting a two-thirds majority for that treaty when it came back to the Senate would be much more assured. It was excellent thinking. Unfortunately, things moved tediously slowly. And uh, Sam and I uh, returned to Geneva. Uh, almost annually in 87, 88, 89, and 90, in which we became even better acquainted with the Russian officials who began to impart to us confidentially what was going on in the Soviet Union, uh, quite apart from what was going on in arms control, which was very little. Uh, the net effect was that when the Soviet Union fell, uh, as I've often told the story, some of these officials came to Washington. They met around a round table, literally circular, in Sam Nunn's office, just down the hallway from where I was. 
and talked about the need for very substantial American assistance just to secure the weapons on the bases where they were. Uh, people say, well, who was going to take them? A lot of people. Mm -hmm. A lot of uh, military people were being discharged. They, the pensions were not being paid. It was a country in bankruptcy. It was a, a totalitarian government that suddenly has nothing going. Uh, and so uh, it was in that uh, spirit that uh, we then began to search for people. I identified Ash Carter uh, as one of these, a professor at Harvard at that time, had other roles at the various times, but he'd done a, really a, a white paper on this whole subject of what if a certain amount of money were uh, made available to the, the President of the United States, whoever that President might be, and so forth. So we picked up that idea, utilized the last days of the 1991 Congressional session, put an amendment on a bill that I can't recall what it was. Uh, we, in other words, did not have a dramatic debate about non-Luger. This was added $500 million at the discretion of President Bush. Uh, Senator Robert Byrd, who was then the Democratic leader, reduced it to $400 million, <laughs> just on general principles. Mm -hmm. And President Bush really was dismayed. He had not asked for such a thing. The thought that uh, congressmen or senators would be so impulsive as to think through a national security measure of this gravity and pass something uh, without the administration initiating it to begin with uh, upset the whole idea of who is the arbiter of foreign policy. But nevertheless, uh, we took uh, members of the administration over with us, that is Sam and I did, to Russia, Ukraine, and Belarus in a, a few months thereafter. And they began to initiate uh, some policies that were important. That administration lost, and we then worked with the next one, President Clinton, and his uh, group coming in, and have ever since. Uh, on my wall, I have a map of Russia, and I have a chart showing how many warheads have been taken off of missiles, how many missiles destroyed, how many submarines destroyed. We got a report each month from the Pentagon that says four more of these, five of these, or so forth. When Russians come to visit with me, they are intrigued. But this is the result of intrusive inspection. That was the heart of the START Treaty. So this is why my own personal diplomacy has been in Russia to get on with this very swiftly. And uh, it's an important feature for our country right now, quite apart from what happened 18 years ago. You mentioned the surprising fact of some of the officials of former Soviet republics actually seeking your help. In an earlier interview with Judy Woodruff, you even talked of the cooperation of Albanian officials in identifying nerve gas near the capital city of Tirana and asking for your help in dismantling those. It must be satisfying to look at that wall and see all the threats that have been neutralized. Well, it is. And the story in Albania, as you've expressed it, was very dramatic. Uh, they could have called somebody else. But uh, they called us, that is the United States, and said, we understand that you have the uh, non-Luger money. So uh, I could not go instantly. I still had responsibilities representing Indiana voting. But uh, we did have Pentagon people who did go over, put a rough fence around the area. Uh, and then I went over. And uh, in fact, here are these drums on the ground rolling around, uh, and they're filled with nerve gas. So it turned out about 18 metric tons collectively. Uh, we worked with a German firm uh, in the NATO spirit to construct something that could 
and a little bit diffused the situation. It took a couple of years. Uh, Sam did join me for a celebration with the president of Albania and their parliamentary leaders and their military and UN officials and so forth, commemorating Albania as the first country to completely get rid of all of its chemical weapons. And they were very proud of that fact. But it, it then led other nations to inquire uh, that we think we still have left over some suspicious material, some of it from atoms from peace. A while ago, in the United States, in order to assuage the anger of some countries, they said, you're retaining nuclear weapons. They said, well, not to worry. We might be able to give you a little fissile material for your laboratories mm -hmm. with health and so forth. Well, we did distribute this, but uh, sometimes we need to get it back. Uh, those, those countries are rather insistent that this is our responsibility to sort of clean up our generosity. Some observers have speculated that it may take until 2020 to secure all the loose nuclear weapons in the world. Are we moving fast enough? Well, 2020 might be a date, but this is a very optimistic scenario. Uh, what I would call, there is a group I would say called the No Nukes Group, and I have great respect for uh, many of these statesmen who say it is so important that we think in terms of no nuclear weapons in the world, that we do everything possible, uh, including destroying our own. Uh, impelling Russia to continue the path with us. And uh, then, of course, uh, both working and praying that nobody else develops weapons in, in the immediate future. Now, now this is uh, a lot of hope because a lot of our attention now diplomatically is given to the Iran, to uh, North Korea, just to name two. Uh, they show no signs as of this evening of uh, wanting to terminate their programs, and they're deliberately being difficult about it. So in the midst of this, to suggest no nuclear weapons in the world uh, is a little much of a stretch. On the other hand, uh, we're working with the Russians, even as we speak, to reduce more of our weapons, reduce more of theirs, to set a very strong example for the rest of the world of what is ideal. You virtually asked my next question. If North Korea and Iran have not stopped and have not participated in such an effort, how effective would sanctions be against either country? In the case of Iran, sanction debate goes on every day, usually with the thought that uh, China and even India are greatly dependent upon Iran for oil, uh, so dependent that their economies would be very badly disrupted if that flow from Iran was disrupted. Russia has been a supplier of nuclear material so that Iran could start up again, uh, a reactor that was uh, down for a period of time. It was good business for the Russians. It's not simply a, a statement of generosity. And uh, likewise, they often take a position, unfortunately, of uh, sort of tweaking the lion's tail with regard to ourselves. In other words, by taking a difficult position, indicate that we are not nearly as powerful as everyone says in persuading people to do things. Yet uh, we are all working together, that is the Russians and the Chinese and the Indians and the British and so forth, with the thought we may need to take action. The UN has laid down now some resolutions, may lay down some more. So it's a, it's a UN affair, it's not a, a United States one. But at the end of the day, who all will cooperate and to what extent uh, is not clear. And 
the history of economic sanctions have been roughly that nations have a good feeling imposing them. Mm -hmm. they, they feel they're taking an action that clearly must hurt and will change things without going to war. But they have very rarely ever been effective, except if you had a very small island in which all the countries of the world said no and starved it out. Uh, there are some exceptions. Certainly, the targeted sanctions we had against South Africa at the time of apartheid and to free Nelson Mandela were miraculously successful for a variety of reasons. Not entirely because South Africa's economy was affected, but their entire diplomatic outlook, their relations with the rest of the world clearly were. And, and there have been other occasions. Uh, certainly the Libyans decided that all things considered, uh, their relations with the rest of the world would be better. Uh, not altogether because of sanctions, but the sanctions said to them something, that the relations are not going to be good if back in the woodwork you're still working on a nuclear project. Now the North Koreans are more difficult. Uh, we've had six power talks, including the Chinese, the Japanese, the South Koreans, the Russians, uh, ourselves, along with the North Koreans. And for a while, the Yongbyon facility was shut down. It was about to be disassembled when the North Koreans changed their minds. They even had a, a few tests. Now, not of nuclear weapons, but of missiles, enough to rattle the Japanese, who have often said to us, now listen, we have never developed nuclear weapons because you, Americans, are the protective shield. Uh, if you can't do the job, uh, then we are close enough to uh, if you're talking about the Iranians, we're right on the threshold. We've done the work. Uh, and that's important to consider, too. As we disassemble our nuclear establishment, other countries have depended upon our umbrella and said, we won't develop because you are there. Now, it, it, you know, theoretically, if we took all of ours away, uh, how many then rise up and say, okay, that's all right if you men want to play that game, but uh, that's not for our security. You've observed the Senate closely since you arrived there in 1976. How has the institution changed? The publication Politico had a special magazine talking about how the Senate has changed, and almost all of what it wrote was for the worse. <laughs> uh, but clearly a very different. They, they found that, uh, first of all, uh, a large number of members of the Senate have come directly from the House of Representatives. Now, that doesn't disqualify them from being. But they also brought the lifestyles, namely a Tuesday to Thursday work ethic, and which you fly out in time for a right. vote on Tuesday, fly out on Thursday night, because your family is back in the district, quite apart from constituents who may anticipate you're going to be there half of the week to deal with that. Whereas uh, in the so-called old days, uh, people were there all week. They came to their constituencies uh, during holidays or from time to time, but very frequently there, was, there were votes on Friday and on Monday and maybe even into Saturday. And so as a result, they were there and they had a social life. They actually dealt with other members uh, in those ways. Uh, not very much anymore. Uh, so as a result, the human relations uh, between members have uh, not deteriorated, they just have never existed. Uh, it's much like a hundred aircraft carrier armadas moving down the hallways. <laughs> um, the senator's surrounded by staff, by inquiring press, by uh, constituents and people who want to shake hands, 
But how, how these mobs ever intersect, except at places like maybe the Aspen Congressional meetings, where maybe 20 people will meet. I, I, I think these are great. And I found many allies for legislation on the House side or on the Democratic side on such occasions when we actually have three or four days to talk about it. But that's rarely the case day by day. I barely ever see members of the House, quite apart from colleagues in the Senate who are not on the committees, which were having extensive hearings. I have read that around the time you came to the Senate, it was customary even for people on opposite sides of the aisle to meet at the end of the day for a drink, to share some social time together, and from that grew a sense of collegiality and, if you will, a lubricant for doing the nation's business. From what you describe, that seems to have virtually disappeared. Yes. Now, there are still, in fairness, maybe a, a few little groups of people who are senators, uh, families are back in their home states, and they say, on Tuesday nights, let's go to this restaurant together, mm -hmm. uh, or Wednesday night or so forth, if we don't have votes, not too late. Uh, a little social life of that sort. Some senators live in houses on Capitol Hill. Uh, they're not like a fraternity house here at <laughs> IU, but uh, have similar characteristics uh, of uh, maybe seven, eight, or nine senators. And, each one with a small room, they barely spend any time in it because they're over at, at the Senate all the time. They just come home and, and sleep at night and go back and so forth. But they see each other coming and going uh, because they're living in the same house. But absent these uh, unusual circumstances, uh, essentially the party people see each other. We have a Republican luncheon on Tuesday and the Democrats meet at the same time. And uh, their strategy is plotted for the week. and. Uh, people are encouraged to campaign harder or raise money or mm -hmm. whatever seems to be. Uh, but this is not exactly intersection uh, toward legislation, toward getting to know people. And, and now we've adopted in this very tough period almost a 60-vote requirement. Now, by that I mean uh, in the old days there were filibusters. Yes. Uh, Southerners filibustered against uh, civil rights for blacks in our country. Strong Thurmond for 24 hours. Yes, uh, classic case. Uh, but uh, nowadays we don't uh, actually do that. We don't actually uh, debate on the floor of the Senate, stand there for hours talking. Rather, you threaten that if this nomination or this amendment or whatever comes up, expect a filibuster. And you're going to need 60 votes to overcome that. That is to get a cloture petitions so that even that doesn't stop the debate, it just says that for 30 more hours, mm -hmm. but that's the end. You finally see the end. So rather than go through the 30 hours or through the rest of it, the leadership of the Senate usually said, we don't have time for that. We've got to move on to mm -hmm. something that might happen. And so uh, things are left adrift on the side, including, for instance, in this current Congress, you have the president having nominated about 200 people for offices in his administration. These are key people, often assistant secretaries or uh, legal counsels, whatever. And uh, only about 70 of these have received a committee hearing and been cleared to be voted on the floor. And the 70 have not been voted on. They're mm -hmm. still being held with the threat that 60 votes will be required. And since no one knows whether 60 votes are there, they don't want to spend time on. Uh, imagine an organization outside of the Congress, or the United States more particularly, that comes into office. The fate of the world depends upon uh, their working 
because uh, we're, we might be under attack. But uh, with the deaths that Treasury are not filled during an economic crisis, less than half of the State Department people there after six months, fewer than that in the Defense Department, uh, and the normal citizens say, well, what in the world is going on? How can a government function under these circumstances? Good question. But, but unless there is some degree of bipartisan cohesion, some conversation as to why it's important that an administration, even if it's a Democratic administration, and you're a Republican senator, that it function in behalf of the country, uh, why we are in trouble. And that's become more and more the case. I'm interested, uh, if you vote with the GOP 76% of the time, and you encourage bipartisan activity, why can't others who are favoring similar positions do similar things? And the same could be said for the Democrats. Why is it not more widely held that bipartisan action can lead to action on issues on which you have common ground? Well, it's very difficult to describe motivation to other members as to why they vote uh, on any occasion. But let me just say that uh, many political writers have said, increasingly as states have redistricted, uh, there are many members of the Congress who have safe districts. Now, no one is ever safe in this world in an elective situation. But at the same time, someone who regularly is obtaining two-thirds of the vote uh, and has a constituency that appears to be one part of the other uh, has uh, an opportunity to stay there for a long while. Now, that person might say, all right, uh, my constituents uh, are going to re-elect me, but uh, why take chances? After all, if the two-thirds are Republican or, t or Democratic, and I, I can come back and demonstrate that I have voted the party line faithfully, it's very likely two-thirds will continue to send me back. Now, you might say, well, my goodness, this is not a very nice way of looking at all this, and, uh, but uh, some members might do that. Others might say that the people who are very active either Democrat or Republican, in my constituency, are, are a hard core of people who have very strong beliefs. Uh, they really uh, don't tolerate this supping with the devil uh, at all. And, and I'm in a close district. I, if I alienate this group, why uh, I'm going to have a primary opponent in my own party. Somebody who says, I will be faithful. Right to whatever it is. Um, and so I don't want to have somebody creeping up out of the woodwork into a, a part, because that could be disruptive of my career. So it, it, it depends upon the status of people. Now, uh, I think Lee Hamilton, who we celebrated tonight for the 10th anniversary of the center, uh, and I were in a position frequently, uh, maybe earlier in our careers, in which people said, why are the two of you so interested in the rest of the world? Mm -hmm. There are plenty of problems right here in Indiana. You know, concentrate your focus here. Well, we said we are. Uh, we've come uh, to, to visit our constituents very frequently. We do a good job, we think, with our constituents. But at the same time, uh, we think, likewise, a part of our responsibility is the security of our country, the relations with the rest of the world, whether it be for trade for Indiana or, or just simply the fact that a small world now, communications have brought us together, somebody really has to do this. 
So uh, these were objective. Uh, I had some campaigns, which remain nameless, mm -hmm. in which uh, opponents for about two or three times finally got over, would, would say, uh, have you seen Luger around here? And um, uh, they say, this is Brazil, Indiana. Uh, and they say, oh, he must be in the other Brazil. <laughs> he wouldn't be here. It wouldn't be in Peru, Indiana. Or, you know, we go back and forth through all this. Um, but in any event, over the course of the time, it seems to me that many people have felt that probably a part of my responsibility ought to be to try to help whoever is president, secretary of state, uh, so forth, as well as to bring together my colleagues for something that's good for the security of our country. In addition to taking care of the Farm Bill as chairman of the Ag Committee or, or things that were very, very important to our local businesses. I wonder now that you have become the senior Republican in the Senate, you describe work you've done with Sam Nunn. Orrin Hatch is famous for work he did with Ted Kennedy on issues they agreed on. How does your party view you? What do they think of you and Orrin Hatch? Are you relics from a day when the Senate was clubby, or does it serve as an example? I think it's, it's fair to say that uh, we have very uh, good relations with the members of our Republican caucus, first of all, because we faithfully attend our participants in all of the activities, uh, which means that very frequently we are attending fundraisers in behalf of others, that uh, we are going to meetings in which they feel our presence would be very helpful. Um, and in other words, uh, we reach out, uh, as I think we should, as I would want to anyway, as in my description of how you get legislation passed, how you get beyond this armada going down the hallway, uh, surrounded by everybody other than other senators. Uh, and I, I, I may have miscalculated that situation, but essentially it seems to me my colleagues, by and large, have been very generous in the comments that they make publicly about me, as well as uh, the things they say of encouragement privately. I don't want to oversimplify, but you sound much like the advice given to participants at an old institution of yours, Boys State. If you want to accomplish something in a group, you have to get to know its people, you have to build relationships, and find common ground. Well, I was fortunate enough to attend Hoosier Boys State. I remember. <laughs> and uh, at that time, um, uh, I was ambitious uh, and wanted to run for governor. Uh, but I lost in the convention of the party that I was in to another fellow. And uh, so I've said for that. But then within 48 hours, there was a problem. He had lost his voice. <laughs> and uh, so he said, Dick, will you, when you come to the final debate, will you speak for me? And I said, sure, I would be honored to do that. So I spoke for uh, my friend, and he was elected. And as I saw him for many, many years around Indiana, <laughs> he would recall all of that. Um, and that's what that happens sometimes. My situation was one that I ran for junior class president at Shoreditch High School, lost a close election. I ran for senior class president, lost again. I, I tried to become the orator at the commencement as the senior graduate, lost that one to Dan Wakefield, now in established and wonderful author from Indiana. Uh, but this is sad, zero for three, you know. Yes. I, and so we move on to college, and fortunately, uh, I was elected co-president of the student body at Denison, which was especially fortuitous, 
because in a separate election, the lady elected was Charlene Smelser, uh, and I've been married to her for 53 years. But at the time, we were actually pinned to other partners, and uh, we had to work things out likewise. <laughs> uh, but that was sort of the beginning. But th then other elections uh, come along. I lost my first Senate election to Senator Birch Bayh as he was winning his third term. Uh, and uh, then I've been fortunate subsequently in this respect. But uh, I lost a majority leader race to Bob Dole, a very worthy competitor mm -hmm. uh, at a time in the Senate when I had an opportunity perhaps there. And, and I think this is a part of the, the picture. You're, you, still people may respect you and may even say good things about you, but you're not always going to be their choice in a particular time. There are other talented people, and you need to recognize that. Now, I'd like to ask you a personal question. You are not a flashy man. Is it overstating the case to say that you are an example of the triumph of substance over style? <laughs> well, I think that would be for others to judge. Uh, but I, I would just say simply that uh, I'm, I, I'm comfortable with uh, who I am and, and the work that I do, uh, the faith that I have, the uh, the general ethos that's come from having uh, very thoughtful and good parents and a lot of people who have helped me. I understand, I think, many of my limitations, maybe most of them by this point. And uh, likewise, that people by and large are more likely to talk to someone uh, who is, uh, is friendly, may not be self-effacing, but at the same time is not going to shout them down, not going to shake and rattle and roll. Uh, that, uh, you know, my my most effective work really comes in good conversation, in listening carefully, finding places where we agree. Let me ask two last questions, because you touch on the idea of shouting people down. There is a rising profile of partisan media in America, on the left and on the right, and a sense that many people want news and commentary that will reinforce a view they already have rather than giving them several points of view. Could a Richard Luger get started in such an environment? Oh, I think so. Uh, but uh, you would have to uh, understand just the situation you've described, that there are persons who make appeals to people at different points of the spectrum. These are not all conservative or liberal people, or uh, they, they have perhaps an audience that they have cultivated and, and really provides for them, uh, for them for a period of time. But I, I think it's, it's fair to say that some people analyzing uh, some of these participants have found that uh, their, uh, their persuasive uh, element uh, is not suspect. They do strike a chord, but with a limited percentage of the electorate. So uh, it could be that people listening to this would be so totally discouraged they would think everybody is hearing this. Everybody must believe mm -hmm. this. But uh, in fact, many people hearing it do want to believe it. They do want to be reinforced with whatever their views or their prejudices may be at the time. But there are just a great number of other people uh, who are somewhere else in the spectrum or are really looking for some explanation. I've found, for example, that uh, most of the times when I'm trying to describe a complex issue, it doesn't really fit anybody's stereotype of 
exactly how they've heard it before. They, they may be confused or befuddled or say, well, there are about five things here we haven't thought about before or something of this sort. Uh, but at the same time, they say it's probably useful to have somebody like that who um, really goes into the weeds and the complexity of all of this. This may be more than we wanted to hear, but still, uh, even if we don't want to hear it, we're glad there's somebody there in the argument making these arguments and uh, saying these things. We've seen the decline of American newspapers in the last couple of years. Many have closed, and it's simultaneously we've seen a rise in these very partisan shows. What is your view of how citizens will inform themselves in the future in the way they need to in a representative democracy? Well, I'm one who uh, enjoys newspapers and magazines and reads a lot of them every day still. But I also understand uh, from uh, the evolution of political campaigning as, as well as the persuasion of people uh, along various lines that through uh, the electronic media or through radio and television or uh, through maybe uh, twittering or things that I'm not fully cognizant about that uh, a great number of people are expressing themselves, gaining messages, and uh, that this may be a part of the content that they have. So this means that a person like myself uh, has got to say, uh, how do you reach everybody? Uh, how, how do you gain a new sophistication as opposed to saying, well, I'm going to stay where I am. I was always a newspaper man, always just, uh, well, still will be in terms of personal consumption. I tear pages out of every day, file after file of this. But at the same time, uh, I appreciate that uh, not everybody does this, including my grandchildren, <laughs> who are very instructive and it's useful to listen to them. Former United States Senator Richard Lugar, who died this week at the age of 87. Radio TV Executive Director Perry Metz conducted this interview recorded in October of 2009. I'm Aaron Kane. Thanks for listening. Copies of this and other programs can be obtained by calling 812-855-1357. Information about profiles, including archives of past shows, can be found at our website, wfiu.org. Profiles is a production of WFIU and comes from the studios of Indiana University. The producer is Aaron Kane. The studio engineer and radio audio director is Michael Paskash. The executive producer is John Bailey. Please join us next week for another edition of Profiles. Profiles.